0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me fix bubble What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the train. I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's lion! Snap out of it. If they call me Mr. Oh, Boy's best Friends' You have no style. You work all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I got my COVID booster a couple of days ago, and I am still feeling it. In fact, I slept for 12 hours last night, but the sore arm and achy armpit is better than getting COVID, so what are you gonna do? This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, we've got Eternals. As I've said in the past, big MCU fan am I. They're my favorite brain junk food, and unfortunately Eternals is a little bit more junk than food. Yes, it's different than the other Marvel films, which is great. Yes, I will watch it many more times, but the story problems are messy. I can't tell if they needed to give director Chloe Zhao more control or less over the final project. Because in films like this, the studio has a heavier hand on the final film, I'm leaning towards they needed to give her less control, which kills my soul to say, but her inexperience with big studio pictures was unfortunately on full display here for me. The weakest parts of the movie, in my opinion, were when they let the film dip more into Zhao's style and the flow of the movie suffers for it as a result. I'm a big fan of Chloe Zhao. I liked Nomadland, but this just didn't quite work for me. Before we get into anything else, I have a slight correction from last week's episode and also in my life because I have apparently been pronouncing Ptolemaic wrong my entire life. Not that it comes up a lot, but I've been saying it wrong. It has been brought to my attention that the P is silent like pterodactyl. Didn't even think to look it up since I'd come across the word before. I was like, I know how to pronounce that. I did not. So it's Ptolemy or Ptolemaic, not Ptolemy. That's an oops. Anyway, this week, we're covering the life of a Scottish knight, whose life I've just realized I've been getting confused with Robert the Bruce's forever, who became one of the main leaders during the First War of Scottish Independence, William Wallace. We'll also cover the making of the film Braveheart, and what the film got right about Wallace, which wasn't much, and what it didn't, which was most of the film, despite the fact that the studio description for Braveheart includes the phrase, "richly detailed." With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Before we get into the life of William Wallace, we need first to go over what Scotland in the late 13th century looked like. When William Wallace was about 16, King Alexander III ruled over Scotland, overseeing a period of peace and economic stability during his rule. But in March 1286, the king died suddenly after falling off of his horse on a stormy night after having a little too much to drink. He had reportedly been on his way back to his home, so he could get it on with his new French bride, whom was half his age. A man, being drunk and horny, has never had such dire a set of consequences. The next in line for the throne was Alexander's granddaughter, Margaret, maid of Norway. But she was still a child, and in also pretty far away Norway. So the Scottish lords set up a government of guardians until she arrived. On the voyage to Scotland, however, seven-year-old Margaret fell ill and died in September of 1290, leaving no clear line of succession. This would lead to a period in Scottish history known as the Great Cause, with several families laying claim to the throne. A civil war soon threatened to break out in Scotland. King Edward I of England was then invited by the Scottish nobility to arbitrate the ruling of whom would be the next Scottish king. At this time, England and Scotland were super chill with each other. King Alexander III had been Edward I's brother-in-law, after all, and Alexander's granddaughter, Margaret, and Edward's son, the later Edward II, were betrothed to be married when they were of age. I'm guessing in the 13th century, that would have been like, what, 12? But I digress. By this time, Edward I had already conquered Wales and Ireland and placed them under his rule, and I guess the Scots just assumed he wouldn't try to do the same to them because they were buds or whatever, but, well, you'll see what happens. I hear it. Before the process of arbitration could begin, Eddie insisted that all of the contenders recognize him as Lord Paramount of Scotland, aka he'd be in charge of Scotland, till they worked their shit out and this was agreed upon. In early November 1292, the auditors ruled that John Balliol had the strongest claim to the Scottish throne and was declared the next king of Scotland. Just one problem. Edward wouldn't relinquish his control of Scotland and demanded that the country pay homage to him to support himself and the military in the current war against France. Also, King Johnny was not a particularly strong ruler, and Edward could pretty much knock him around as he pleased. Edward's influence on Scottish affairs weakened Balliol's reign and eventually, tired of being made a fool of, King John amassed an army and invaded northern England. Well, this didn't sit too well with Eddie I, and in retaliation, Edward invaded Scotland, starting the First War of Scottish Independence. His first act of war was letting a legion of trained soldiers loose on Berwick, a town primarily full of civilians where Scottish armies had previously killed and raided English tradesmen. Their slaughter lasted three days and only ended after Edward saw one of his men viciously murdering a woman, the details of which I will not go into here because it's real, real gnarly. This raid ended with the Scottish army defeated and King John captured and held up in the Tower of London. Edward left an earl in charge of Scotland and returned to London, believing the Scots had been put in their place. Well, the high Scottish nobility's passiveness and then utter defeat by Edward I led to uprisings within the Scottish commoners. After the Barrack Incident in 1296, Balliol abdicated from the Tower of London, and Edward then claimed complete control over Scotland. Eventually, Balliol was exiled to his estates in France, living out the rest of his life in obscurity. Scotland was then left without a monarch until the accession of Robert the Bruce in 1306. But I'm getting ahead of myself. William Wallace came of age during these tumultuous times, a member of the lesser nobility. His father was likely a knight. Very little is known of his lineage, though it is believed that he was the younger son of a Scottish landowner, whom likely died when he was about 18. His mother lived until he was about 24, also unknown as his exact birth date, though it was around 1270, or what he even looked like, though it is generally agreed upon by historians that he was a big boy, at least six foot six. It is believed that Wallace had some military experience before his more famous, rebellious career, though it is not known exactly what this might have been. As a second son, no land was promised to young Wallace, meaning he'd have to make his own way in life. Based on historical artifacts and documents, he was taught by monks before leaning towards a slightly different career. It is known that William was an archer and likely a hunter so it worked out well for Wallace that he was alive in a time of great upheaval, otherwise the world would likely never know the name William Wallace today. The first act of rebellion definitely known to have been carried out by Wallace and his men against the English rule was the killing of William de Heselrig, the English High Sheriff of Lanark, in May 1297. This is said to have been done due to a private grudge, but it is not certain if that is true. Wallace had, according to some sources, fallen in love with a woman named Marion that the sheriff of Lanark also had the hots for. The two got into a tussle, and Marion had helped Wallace escape. The sheriff killed her in retaliation. Wallace returned in the night with some men to carry out his vengeance. He killed de Hesselrig violently in his bed. But it's possible Marion didn't exist at all, and the fact that Hesselrig was not just the sheriff, but the judge of the town as well, so it's likely that the probably already outlawed William Wallace would have killed him just to keep himself from getting busted or prosecuted. During the time, tales were made up about William Wallace, coincided with the popularity of Robin Hood, so it's likely those people making up those stories gave Wallace his own maid, Marion. After killing Heselrig, Wallace then joined with William the Hardy and Andrew Murray, and they carried out raids throughout the Scottish countryside, sparing only women and priests. This was one of several rebellions taking place across Scotland, including that of future King of Scotland, Robert the Bruce, whom was amassing troops in southwestern Scotland around the same time. Soon, Wallace's small militia had turned into a full-blown army. The English had to act, and Edward, while waging a different war in France, ordered his troops to march north. On September 11, 1297, an English army confronted Wallace and his troops at the Forth River near Stirling. The Scots were massively outnumbered, but the English would have to cross a narrow bridge, two by two on horses, over the Forth River before they could reach Wallace and his men. With the high ground, Wallace and company massacred the English as they crossed the river, giving Wallace an unlikely victory, sources say killing as many as 5,000 English troops. One of the few casualties on the Scottish side was Andrew Murray. Wallace went on to capture Stirling Castle, and Scotland was, for the briefest of moments, nearly completely free of English forces. Personality Rise, not a lot is definitively known about who William Wallace was during this time, as legends were springing up about him as he was carrying out his rebellion, so it's almost impossible to discern fact from fiction. What we do know is that in October 1297, Wallace invaded Northern England. When he entered England, the rules of whom would be spared shifted drastically. Wallace was a brutal fighter and would even burn down monasteries, laugh as monks were drowned, raped women, tortured villagers, a level of violence that shocked even the medieval people in a time where violence was the name of the game. He even reportedly flayed a dead English soldier and kept his skin as a trophy. All of this alleged carnage motivated the English troops to keep fighting towards defeating William Wallace. Wallace was killing Englishmen wherever he found them. So yeah, not a guy you'd want to grab a beer with in modern day, probably either. When Wallace returned to Scotland toward the end of 1297, he was knighted, likely by Robert the Bruce, and proclaimed guardian of the kingdom in December. Three months later, Edward returned to England from France, and in July he invaded Scotland again with more fervor than ever before. Wallace's troops suffered a devastating defeat in the Battle of Falkirk on July 22, 1298. His military reputation destroyed in an instant, and he would resign his guardianship as a result. The loss wasn't all his fault, as the Scottish nobility withdrew troops just before the battle began, and the English had a fancy new invention called the longbow, which proved deadly. Wallace had not prepared his troops for this long-range weapon. 10,000 of Wallace's men were killed that day. Most of Wallace's surviving men reportedly abandoned him after the Battle of Falkirk. As a result, Wallace then served as a diplomat. In 1299, he attempted to garner German and French support for Scotland's rebellion. He was briefly successful with the French, but they would soon turn against the Scots, and Scottish leaders eventually surrendered to the English and recognized Edward as their king in 1304. Guess who didn't care for that choice too much? Unwilling to submit to English rule, William Wallace went on the lamb hiding out in the forest. On August 5th, 1305, however, the English troops captured and arrested him near Glasgow, Scotland, after being betrayed by a fellow Scot and personal friend of Wallace, Sir John Monty. Wallace was taken to London and condemned as a traitor to the king on August 23rd, 1305. If you're squeamish, you're going to want to jump ahead about like 15 seconds, because I'm about to drop some gruesome execution knowledge. Straight after the trial, Wallace was stripped naked, dragged to the city by two horses whom he had been tied to, while being pelted with trash from onlookers. He was then hanged to the brink of death, disemboweled, castrated, beheaded, and then drawn and quartered. His preserved head would be placed on a pike on London Bridge. His quartered limbs were displayed separately in Aberdeen, Berwick, Stirling, and Perth as warnings to the Scots. This didn't quite work the way Edward had hoped, and Wallace was soon seen by the Scots as a martyr and as a symbol of the struggle for independence, and his influence would carry on years after his death some would say centuries. Scotland would gain its independence about 23 years after Wallace's execution with the Treaty of Edinburgh in 13... 28, which would bring the First War of Scottish Independence to a close. Scotland would remain independent from England, though English rulers would continue to try and take it back a couple of times, until James VI of Scotland became the king of both Scotland and England in 1603, when Elizabeth I died childless. There would be further rebellions, which you're likely aware of if you've seen the star show Outlander, but this is where the tale of William Wallace comes to a close. This Scottish hero and symbol of independence would, nearly 700 years after his execution, be betrayed by an Australian-American actor who'd blur the lines of history for the sake of entertainment. But before we get to that, let's talk about the movie Braveheart. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Now, if you've seen the movie Braveheart recently or you're a big fan of it, you can probably surmise by my Sparks Notes version of William Wallace's life that the final part of this episode is going to be a big boy because man alive did that film take some liberties with this dude's life. But before we get to that, let's talk about how the 1995 film Braveheart got made. Completely sidestepping, but still acknowledging the fact that Mel Gibson is a, let's oversimplify by using the word problematic, individual these days, in 1995, he was in the prime of his career. You know, before all the anti-Semitism and calling that officer sugar tit stuff. But I digress. Mel Gibson spent most of the 90s alternating between personal projects and big blockbusters. This included films like Forever Young, The Third Lethal Weapon, and Pocahontas. He made his directorial debut in 1993 with the film The Man Without a Face, a drama about a disfigured painter, played by Gibson of course, whom remains isolated from society after being labeled a pedophile by the locals. The film had gotten him some positive reviews, a little bit of a buzz, and Gibson set out to find his next directorial project. It was Alan Ladd Jr., whose name may sound familiar as he was responsible for bringing Rocky Horror Picture Show to Fox in the 1970s, that would begin the road to the film Braveheart getting made. Ladd had initially come across the project while at MGM Pathé when he picked up the script from screenwriter Randall Wallace, no relation to the historical figure that I could find. Wallace based his script on a poem, which was a romanticized retelling of the life of William Wallace. Now, if you remember the MGM episode from all the way back in September, 2020, you remember that the 90s was a rough time for MGM. So it's not a surprise that they would not be the studio to make this film. In 1993, Ladd left MGM and took some of its top properties with him, which included Braveheart. Mel Gibson came across the script, and even though he liked it, he initially passed on it. However, the thought of it kept coming back to him, and he ultimately decided to take on the project as a director. He would later decide to undertake the William Wallace role as well. Sean Connery would actually help him perfect the accent. Getting financing for Braveheart was no easy task, however. Warner Brothers was willing to fund the project on the condition that Gibson sign for a fourth lethal weapon, which he refused to do. Financing would eventually come through from two other major film studios, a third of the budget coming from Paramount Pictures in exchange for North American distribution rights to the film, and 20th Century Fox would put up two-thirds of the budget in exchange for international distribution rights. During the budget negotiations over at Paramount, Gibson reportedly got pissed at the stipulations, and according to Agent Jeff Berg, threw a glass ashtray through a wall. Yes, through a wall, not at a wall. Gibson later likened his behavior during this time to the Antichrist. I wonder how he refers to all that stuff from the 2000s. Principal photography on the film began on June 6th, 1994. While the crew spent three weeks shooting on location in Scotland, during which it rained almost nonstop, the majority of the film, including the major battle scenes, were actually shot in Ireland. This was done because Ireland had given the production significant tax breaks to shoot there. The battle scenes used members of the Irish Army Reserve as extras. To lower costs, Gibson had the same extras, up to 1,600 people in some scenes, portray both armies. Many of the horses that charged the enemy lines were mechanical to ensure the lack of horse death. Speaking of horses, during filming, Gibson was almost crushed by one. It nearly landed on him after he'd fallen off of it, and the horse had unexpectedly reared up. A stunt double had to pull him to safety. Braveheart faced many difficulties during its production, much of which spawned from the fact that most of the film takes place outside, meaning that lighting took longer. I know you think it'd be the opposite, but it's not. Just think about the cloud factor, and that'll pretty much give you an idea of what they were working with. There was also the unpredictable weather. As such, there are scenes where the ground goes from dry to wet between shots. There are also a lot of problems with focusing the camera lens, leading to several shots in the movie being out of focus. This was blamed on the quick production schedule of the fight scenes. This didn't seem to matter to the Academy, though, as the film would take home the Oscar for Best Cinematography. Also, look out for a jeep in the background during the Battle of Sterling Bridge. It's the first big battle in the film. You may not know it's the Battle of Sterling Bridge because, well, there is no bridge, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Principal photography for Braveheart ended on October 28th, 1994. In the edit room, Gibson had to tone down the film's battle scenes and some other brutal stuff to avoid an NC-17 rating, with the final version of the film being rated R for Brutal Medieval Warfare, which is frankly putting it lightly. Paramount exec Cheryl Lansing further made Gibson cut the film down to 177 minutes, just under three hours for you guys that are bad at math, but never fear, there is a four-hour version of the film Gibson wants to reassemble if Paramount and Fox are interested is owned by Disney now and he is again problematic to put it at the very least, so I wouldn't hold my breath on seeing that version of the film anytime soon. Braveheart released wide in the US on May 24th, 1995, and received rave reviews all around when it came to the filmmaking. The biggest critique? The massive amount of historical inaccuracies in the film. As of writing this section of the episode, I haven't rewatched the film to analyze it, and the more I keep reading how much was incorrect is making me dread the next part. Ironically, this film would lead to a huge boost in interest in Scotland and Scottish history, not just internationally but within the country of Scotland as well. In fact, a Braveheart convention was held in the city of Stirling in 1997. Of course, because the Academy loves films like this, Braveheart cleaned up at the Oscars, nominated for ten. The film would win five, including Best Picture and Best Director. While Braveheart revitalized the Scottish tourism scene, while bringing one of its historical figures to the world, world stage, the film took vast historical liberties. Just how much? Well, buckle in. How did you know me after so long? Why, I didn't. No. It's just I saw you staring at me and I didn't know who you were. I'm sorry, I suppose I was. Are you in the habit of riding off in the rain with strangers? <sighs> it's the best way to make you leave. Oh. I well, if I can ever work up the courage to ask you again or send you a written warning first. Oh, it wouldn't do you much good. I can't read. Can you not? Mm. Well, that's something we shall have to remedy, isn't it? Are you going to teach me to read, then? Um? Well, if you like. Aye? And what language? I hear sure enough now. That's right. Are you impressed yet? <laughs> no. Why should be? I be? Before we get into this, The Caitlin that already finished this research, which took way longer than I thought it would, is the one talking to you now. And she would like to tell you to NEVER watch this film to learn about the real William Wallace. If you want to watch a gently anglophobic film featuring historically inaccurate Scottish people with epic battle scenes, then you're in luck, that's this film for sure. This next bit has a ton of unavoidable spoilers compared to last week, as much of the plot of this film and the people portrayed in it is historically inaccurate to the nth degree. if you want to watch Braveheart one more time, or for the first time before I completely ruin it for you forever, as I have done for myself and I don't even like this movie that much, this is your last and only warning. So, let's start off with the name of the film, Braveheart. Yeah, that term was given to Robert the Bruce, not William Wallace, in a poem by William Edmundstone Ayton called Heart of Bruce. So if they didn't even name the movie after the right Scottish dude, you could pretty much imagine what's about to come down. In the film, any mention of William Wallace's nobility is completely erased. Instead, he's just an average Joe peasant with a penchant for language. While that makes him a more inspiring underdog, it is inaccurate. The real Wallace, because of his birth, would have been well-educated and intimately familiar with the politics that led to this eventual rebellion. Wallace was also way more vicious of a leader than the film depicts. In the film, he is more of a reluctant leader, driven more by the loss of his love than the freedom of his people. In reality, Wallace fought more directly for his country and would amass much of his army through usage of their version of a draft and would hang any man that refused him. He was a trained military man, not a peasant guerrilla fighter. Then there's Edward I, whom the film refers to extensively as Longshanks. The opening of the film describes the original of this nickname coming from his pagan religion, which is not true on two fronts. One, the nickname Longshanks came from Edward being a quite tall person, and two, Edward was a Christian, not a pagan. While the actual Edward I was ruthless and temperamental, but that seemed to be kind of the personality of the era, the film highly over-exaggerates these traits for dramatic flair. In reality, Edward also enjoyed a good poem and some pop music, and was a devoted and loving husband to his wife. He was also a deeply religious man who gave generously to charity. The film scene where he berates Isabella of France, his daughter-in-law, which is its own issues, which we'll get to in a second, for distributing gold to the poor after Wallace refuses it as a bribe, is untrue because he was a philanthropist and also Isabella was a child in France at the time this event would have taken place. Also, Edward I died on campaign two years after Wallace's execution, not in bed at his home as shown in the film. The historical inaccuracies kick off right in the first scenes. Edward I invades Scotland in 1280 after King Alexander dies leaving no heir. As you know, because I told you like 15 minutes ago, that Alexander III died in 1286 and had an heir, Margaret of Norway, whom didn't die until 1290. In the film, Edward further murders a bunch of Scottish nobles, of which a young William Wallace witnesses the aftermath soon after his father is murdered off-screen. While these events provide motivation for movie William, it is not even close to what happened in reality. Edward wouldn't invade Scotland until 1296 when Wallace was about 26, and only after King John had rebelled against Edward. Throughout Wallace's childhood and into adulthood, Scotland was an independent kingdom, and his rebellions would only start one year after Edward's actual invasion in 1296. After Edward I invades in the film, he allows the right of jus prima noctis, a, it turns out, likely fictional medieval legal right, which allowed English nobles to have sex with serf women on their wedding nights. Yes, British soldiers and Scottish soldiers were known for bad behavior throughout many conflicts in history, and this one is no exception, but most of that behavior was off the books and not officially sanctioned by the rulers of the day. Despite the fact that Prima Noctis has come up in several other pieces of media about this era, no solid source confirms its existence. So yeah, the inciting incident for this film, the death of Wallace's secret wife after he tries to save her from being sexually assaulted by British soldiers, only to have her be executed, and then the men fight the soldiers occupying their village, likely all not true. Also, if the real William Wallace was married, it was not to a woman named Murren, but rather to Marion, though as I mentioned earlier, this has been questioned as well. Speaking of ladies, let's get back to all the inaccuracies around Isabella of France. In Braveheart, she and Wallace begin having an affair soon after the Battle of Falkirk. Toward the end of the film, she tells Edward I that she's pregnant and that her son, the future Edward III, might not be her husband's but rather Wallace's. As I mentioned earlier, Isabella of France was a child at this time. No, not a child, she was a toddler. Only about three years of age and also in France at the time. When Wallace was executed, she would have been about 13. She would also not be married to Edward II until he was already king, meaning Eddie I was already dead, so any interactions they had in the film, fictional. And Edward III was born seven years after Wallace had died, so unless it was the longest pregnancy in the history of pregnancies, it, it, it didn't happen. Edward II's portrayal in this film as an effeminate homosexual has been viewed as Highly homophobic in recent years, which it is. Mel Gibson has defended this choice because of course he has. There is some evidence that Edward II may have been bisexual, but not homosexual as portrayed in the film. In actuality, homosexuality as we know it today simply was not in existence at this time. It is known that Edward did prefer the company of men over women, but this would not have been that big a deal at the time. Edward II historically has been described as a model prince and would sire four children with Isabella of France. He was not impotent around women, as the film Braveheart portrays. Also, Edward I, as far as history knows, never killed any one of his son's lovers, male or otherwise, by pushing them out a window, because there would be no point. At one point, Wallace's uncle Argyle, whom raised him, said that bagpipes had been banned in Scotland. While this has happened during Scotland's history, this did not happen in the 13th century. Also, Uncle Argyle did not exist in reality. The McGregors from the next Glen that joined Wallace shortly after the Lenark incident, which is the fight after his wife was killed, is more than likely fiction as well, just for the small fact of the matter that the Gregor clan likely didn't exist yet. When they did emerge several hundred years later, their traditional home was geographically quite some distance from Lenark as well. Wallace did win the Battle of Stirling Bridge, but the version in Braveheart is very inaccurate. For starters, there is no bridge. The battle also lacks Andrew Moray, joint commander of the Scots army who was fatally injured in the real battle. This scene has been labeled by CNN as one of the best depictions of medieval battles in cinema despite its rife historical inaccuracies, most notably, and I cannot stress this enough, the lack of a bridge. The whole point and the whole reason Wallace won that battle was because of the bridge. Later, Wallace did carry out a large-scale raid into the north of England, but he did not get as far south as York, as portrayed in the film, nor did he kill Edward I's nephew, as it is portrayed in the film. Ooh, The Irish conscripts, drafted soldiers at the Battle of Falkirk, whom started fighting for the English before switching to the Scottish side mid-battle, are also unhistorical. In fact, there were no Irish troops at Falkirk at all, and many of the English army were actually probably Welsh. Also, it is incorrect to refer to them as conscripts in the first place, as that was not the term they used during the Middle Ages. When it came to swords, the two-handed longsword used by Mel Gibson as William Wallace in the film was not in wide use in this period. A one-handed sword and shield would have been more likely, but I'm assuming he wanted to feel like an epic badass, and let's be honest, two-handed sword, that's, that's your boy for that. Also, and to be honest, this was news to me, not gonna lie, Scots of this era would not have been wearing the belted plaid, better known to non-Scots as a type of kilt during this era. The kilt wouldn't come into vogue until about 300 years after the quote-unquote events of this film, and even still, they were not worn the way the film depicts. Also, the blue face paint, which comes from a plant known as woad, the face paint that extensively features on pretty much all covers for this film and the posters and what have you. Yeah, that battle adornment fell out of practice about a thousand years before the events of this film. All the hair adornments, including the braids and mullets, also not historically accurate. Also historically inaccurate were the English soldiers' uniforms, which would not have matched during this era. To be fair to Braveheart, pretty much every movie about medieval Europe portrays this incorrectly, as the reality would be very confusing to most audiences. In the 13th century, soldiers were wearing whatever tunics they could find or afford to put over their chainmail. Some may have worn family standards, but they did not have like one like English army jersey. One of the cruelest and frankly most ironic inaccuracies in Braveheart is that it completely slanders the man that was actually named Braveheart. In the film, Robert the Bruce betrays his Scottish brethren and while the real Robert was a conflicted nobleman, yes, he was always on the Scottish side of this conflict, which means he never fought against Wallace at Falkirk, nor did he or his father have anything to do with the betrayal of William Wallace and his subsequent execution as is portrayed in the film. Bruce is considered a national hero in scotland not a villain as the movie makes him out to be in the dvd commentary of braveheart mel gibson acknowledges the historical inaccuracies throughout the film but defends his choices as a director noting that the way he told the story was much more quote-unquote cinematically compelling than the historical fact or conventional mythos dude make a different movie then like like come on it's like it feels like they were like just trying to make it all incorrect at this point the one thing Braveheart did get mostly right, it should come as no surprise if you've seen a Mel Gibson-directed film, is Wallace's torture scene, though they did actually tone that one down quite a bit, likely to avoid the dreaded NC-17 rating, which is honestly more of a strategic move than probably what Gibson wanted to do, based on purely just seeing Passion of the Christ. He definitely would have done this more violent if he thought he would get away with it. But alas, in reality, during Wallace's torture, he never shouted, freedom, at any point in the matter depicted in the film. His last words are unknown. And between you and me, he likely didn't have a chance to say much since there isn't a lot of downtime to speak when you're being executed four different ways at once. In reality, William Wallace is a hero of Scottish history, a man of lowly noble birth, who was a complex human being, as we all are, though not necessarily in the ways depicted in the 1995 film Braveheart. This film should serve as an example that while a film can be massively successful, entertaining, and win awards, it does not mean that what you are seeing is real, even if it says based on a true story. Yes, Braveheart is an epic, overall pretty well-made film. It is not an accurate depiction of any historical event. Always make sure to do your research before assuming anything is true, and no, Facebook is not a credible source for you over 50s that listen. I consider myself a pretty big history buff, and I love... UK history, and I knew that the events of Braveheart the film weren't super accurate, but even I had no idea the extent of just how much creative license was taken until I started researching William Wallace and the film this week. I'm sure I miss some too, but from my solo research, these are at the very least the big ones. So, the next time you sit down and watch Braveheart with your dad or other male acquaintance, because let's be honest, ladies, we're not the ones reaching for the dusty Braveheart DVD, make sure you smugly recount to everyone all of the historical inaccuracies running rampant in this film, like I will the next time I have to watch this movie. Yes, I do have friends and family members who refuse to watch movies with me, why do you ask? And that's gonna do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram at Tinsel underscore factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm currently doing the calendar for next year. So if you have anything you want me to talk about, now is the time to send in some suggestions. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the life of Abraham Lincoln and everything that the film Lincoln got right and wrong. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.